Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Good morning also to you in Wilmington, and welcome, uh, welcome here. It's good to have you. <clears throat> About 40 of the weeks of our church's year, the way that we organize our messages are take place by putting the Word of God in front and sort of meditating on the Word of God. And then as a process of doing that comes a reflection on our time and place, a reflection on today's setting. That's usually how we do it. Two to three times out of the year, however, we, we, we kind of swap the cart and the horse and we put our time and place in front, some uh, some culturally relevant idea in front, and we go to the Word and reflect on it in light of that issue. And that's, one of, that's where we are this morning. Uh, the sermon series, Identity, is a, re, is a reflection on Christian life in the digital age. How are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to process the world around us? And I thought I would start with... Um, an individual who some of you may know. <clears throat> His name is Marshall McLuhan. And he was a pivotal thinker during pop culture. Now, I don't think many of you know him. I didn't know him. Uh, Pastor Terry put me onto him. And, uh, but let me tell you a little bit about this guy. A prominent magazine called Marshall McLuhan the high priest of the pop cults, and the metaphysician of the media. In 1965, the New York Herald heralded him as the most important thinker since Newton, Darwin, Freud, Einstein, and Pavlov. In 1967, he became the first person, second person, excuse me, ever to appear on the cover of Life magazine and Newsweek in the same week. And this is what Newsweek wrote about him, that his, quote, theory of communication offers nothing less than an explanation of all human culture, past, present, and future. Those big words. Marshall McLuhan's thinking was such a deep thinker that it uh, was insightful almost to the point of prophetic. He predicted the hippie movement and the internet. Wired Magazine, which is sort of a hip, techie magazine, has anointed McLuhan as the patron saint of Wired Magazine. <clears throat> Interestingly enough, McLuhan was wildly embraced by secular pop culture, even though he was a devout practicing Catholic. And more interesting even than that is, when he was work, uh, earning his, his PhD at Cambridge, his good friend G.K. Chesterton walked him to the Lord. And uh, he's a personal favorite author of mine. Walked him to faith in Jesus Christ. When he converted McLuhan's mother, uh, it was said that she wept inconsolably because he had destroyed his career. McLuhan spoke seven languages. He earned two master's degrees, one PhD from Cambridge. He died an untimely death. But before he died, he was conferred 10 honorary doctorates from other institutions in this country. And he had many profound insights, one of the greatest of which is this. 
the medium is the message. The medium is the message. What he means by that is the medium through which a message is translated does more shaping of you than the message itself. Let me say that again. That the medium, be it newspaper, telephone, TV, internet, the medium through which the message is translated actually has a greater shaping force on you than the, so the messages that you're hearing through the medium. And I think he's right. He actually stressed it. He, he I'm going to be paraphrasing him, but he gave a great sort of hyperbole to emphasize his point. He said, the medium is like an atomic bomb and the message is like what you would graffiti on the side of it. That's how significant he saw the medium versus the message. We like to think, and I hear this language, I've used this language, I've heard this language in the church many times, that technology is just a thing and it can be used for good and it can be used for ill. It's just a thing. And that the church should sort of leverage every sort of technological thing that's culturally normative to reach people in the name of Jesus Christ. And there's truth in that, and I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm just saying it's far too simplistic. McLuhan would say, the message can be either good or evil, but you're ignoring the medium as though it's this inert object just sitting on the table. He's saying it's the medium that does the primary shaping of a culture. Let me give you just some examples here. This is a picture from the late 1800s, Tennessee. If a family gathered around, you might be thinking, this, you sure this wasn't last week in Tennessee? No. Late 1800s in Tennessee. I know, I know. Couldn't help it. Uh, late 1800s in Tennessee, family gathered around the fireplace. Now, this is, I mean, we're looking through a medium of picture, right? So we can't escape this. This may be somewhat of a staged moment by the family. But they are representing what they think ought to be happening around the fire. So even to whatever degree that it may be artificial, it's still reaching at a concept, which is, I just want you to notice, we don't need to think deep right now, just look and notice the family members are facing one another. Uh, they're gathered around, and McLuhan would say here in this case, the medium of interest is the fireplace. That's the technological medium, and that it's shaping the room. The medium of fire has the ability of extending daylight well into evening. It has the compounding power of making people feel warm and secure. It becomes the gathering point of people at night. So he would say, you should note how profound the fireplace or the fire is in shaping culture, okay? So he would not point to an early moment saying that was a time without medium. He would say, note that medium. But here, note the medium. The family's gathered around the fire. They're doing various sorts of family things and the fire has no message, the fire's not talking, it's not sharing, it's not promoting anything, okay? The family's talking and sharing and singing, I suppose, in this case. All right, here we're going to move a little bit farther along in history. Here is the next picture, right? Still kind of Norman Rockwellian moment. Uh, 
But notice how the family no longer is oriented around or facing itself. It's now all sort of bowing like you're doing here, right? You're facing a common object. And in this case, it's the television. And in this picture, you can assume, because you all know, when people are watching TV, they're not talking, they're listening. So now, the medium has reframed the house, has reframed the room, and now it is the talker. So wildly different than the fireplace, now the only one talking is the only person not in the room and does not even know you. Okay, let's look at another one. Well, I would say, go back real quick. Before we get here, I was, I was surfing the web looking for pictures, and I found one. I couldn't find this website. I wanted to show it to you so much. It was a, it turned out, it was a bedsheet website trying to sell bedsheets for people who like to watch TV in bed. I did not know you needed special bedsheets, but I do now. <laughs> I'm amazed, but apparently people don't like their feet tucked in because it gets it works hard on their feet. They want to flop one way. This bedsheet relieves your feet, but you can still see the TV screen through your feet. I'm really glad to know that. Well, this website proudly pronounced that the TV has changed the nature of the bedroom. Think of that. They proudly pronounced it. In fact, they used a Hebrew word. Hallelujah. The TV has redefined the bedroom, it said. Now, I want you to pay attention. Okay, I know you may say, well, we don't watch TV in our bedroom. We haven't been redefined by the TV. That's not my point. Okay? What is more worth noting is this company thinks that by saying that, they're going to sell more sheets. Okay? They're betting their livelihood on the fact that that connects. That tells you something. And I also want you to note, it doesn't matter what channel's on. They didn't say, I Love Lucy has redefined the bedroom, or Sports Center has redefined the bedroom, or Desperate Housewives, or Game of Thrones. It's TV. Doesn't, doesn't matter what you're watching. It's reshaped the bedroom. Okay, we'll come to, to a present day. This is a great picture. So what's really interesting, this picture was taken, Johnny Depp is on the other side of all of those cameras. He's in Boston, okay? But what's really interesting is there's one person who's not like the others. Do you see her? Okay, there's one lady who's actually looking at Johnny Depp. Now, there is a little girl in the bottom left-hand corner who looks like she's taken her full of pictures, and so now she can come up from the screen. But essentially, there's one lady who sees Johnny Depp, and there's 50 others who are looking at their handheld device. The medium is the message. The medium is shaping us. The mere fact that in your back pocket or your purse or wherever you keep it, you have this mobile phone, this smartphone, able to do all of these things. It doesn't matter. The degree to which you use it, how you use it, and how it messages you is less significant than the fact that it's a normative part of your life. 
That's worth noting. That's what McLuhan would say, and I think he's right. And I want to I take that, and I want to sort of made it up with Scripture. But let me just tell you where we're going this morning, okay? There's two things that I want to awaken. We're going to be in this series for five weeks. We're going to be sort of plowing up the dirt of digital media and, and like shaking up things that we haven't even thought about. And I'm excited that we can do this together. And this morning, I just want to awaken two sorts of lines of thinking. One is that we would become, seek to become conscious of things that are passively happening to us. To become aware that when we participate in these mediums, they are shaping us merely by us using them. And that culture, the moment it's culturally normative, we're shaped by it. That's the first thing. And we're sort of working through that point. So we're about halfway through. We're about to turn to the word. After that, we're going to kind of leave what's passively happening and begin to ask questions about, like, why are you going where you're going with the digital world? What are you getting there? What problem is it solving? So right now, we're sort of dealing with the passive effect on us that the medium itself has. And then we're going to be saying the active what we can learn by our active participation with it. If we're going to just keep thinking about this passively, I want us to think about this notion of worldview. What is a worldview? And by the way, this morning is more philosophical than normal. It's sort of laying the groundwork. So if this isn't your cup of tea, give us one more try. Uh, let's talk about worldview. Worldview is how a person interprets reality. And it exists in every one of us. Every person has a worldview. And there's a squirrely thing about a worldview. You don't think about worldview unless you consciously choose to. Worldview is the operating system in you that comes on when you turn on the switch. When you wake up in the morning, it's worldview that's already at work. You you have to tell yourself to brush your teeth, but you don't have to tell yourself to have a worldview. It's there. And it's been shaped by lots of different ways. I just, need, I just want us to appreciate and know, we do not consciously embrace worldview unless we decide to think about it. Otherwise, it's just happening. And the goal for the Christian, the goal for the follower of Jesus, would be to live life through a godly worldview. To live life in such a way that we embrace reality as reality actually is, as God has given it to us. And sort of Genesis 1 and 2 sort of lay out the perfect picture, right? To live life in the knowledge that we're created by the Lord in his image. It's huge for worldview. And to look at every other human being on the face of the earth, no, they're made in the image of God. Shapes our worldview. To see us as equal participants and is suitable for one another, made by God. And we even find meaning and purpose in a godly worldview. Like in Genesis, right? He makes them, he puts them together, and then he charges them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. He sort of gives them a mission statement, together go and do this thing. And, And that sort of establishes a good godly worldview for you to think of life and to interpret reality in light of the fact that you're made by God and that all of creation belongs to him and that he has a meaning and a purpose for you in it. You could even add how much more in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
the Jesus who has redeemed us. So now we're not simply living life in, in, in the light of the fact that we are created by God, but we who are followers of Jesus live life in the notion that we've been redeemed, bought, saved, ransomed, adopted, taken back by God from the world. How much purpose should there be in that? You know, it's one thing for a young boy to say, when I grow up, I want to be a fireman. That's great. That's a fine answer. It's better if he were to say, I think God's put it in me to be a fireman. Do you see that? There's a difference. One is man-centered. One is God-centered. And best is, Lord, as I'm a fireman, like show me, show me your daily will as I live out your meaning and purpose. That's best. That is living life in a godly worldview. But we're not born that way anymore, right? We live in the fall. You know, ever since sin has entered into the world, when we wake up in the morning, when we come out of the womb, a godly worldview is not our operating system. A humanistic worldview is what is at work where we are the end of ourselves. We're born with an innate knowledge of the divine, but with a spirit that is running from him. And so the world has a different way of thinking to offer us. This is what, this is Romans 1 that's going to be on the screen. This is what Paul says. I think this is a, a, maybe the, one of the best passages in the Bible to sort of describe how the world thinks. And uh, it's, so it's a general statement about humanity. And we've been here before. You may remember we've been here. When we talked about sex drift, we started with worldview. Okay, we're back at culture, so we're back at worldview. This is what Paul writes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Do you see that? They suppress the truth. It's not that God hasn't made himself known to you. You're born with a knowledge of God and we are active suppressors. Okay? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his defined nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. In other words, God's invisible nature, we can't say we can't see him because God has made his invisible nature his qualities, his power, he's made them clearly understandable to you and me through the way he's shown creation. Meaning, if you can't find him, you're without excuse. It's on you. That's what it's saying. It's saying you're adopting a worldview that's avoiding the reality of God. And this is what happens, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals, creeping things. Our world is trending in a direction. 
away from the Lord. That's what he said. Paul is saying, God has shown himself, but we've suppressed the truth. We do not consider the glory of God something that's worthy of honor and thanks, so we turn rather in our foolish, darkened hearts to things that were fashioned by men. We turn to the created rather than the creator for meaning. We turn to things that are equal or less than us to fill us with meaning, right? And we, I say this, and you, you know this, we hear this. This is in our, enough in our bloodstream that we hardly have to, we call it out and we know it intuitively, right? How easy it is for us to look for meaning in surrogate created things rather than God. And I just want to merge. I want to merge scripture with McLuhan's insight to say, if the medium is the message, if the medium really does shape us in ways that are far more profound than the message that they're carrying, and if the media, the medium is something that's saturated and immersed in our normative cultural society, well, then where do you think it will tend to take you? Where would you describe the gravitational pull of it? If you just thoughtfully consume that medium, what do you think it's going to do? It's going to glorify the Lord? We consciously glorify the Lord. Unconsciously, we're worldly. Okay. I want to leave that idea, okay? We're going to pick that up just sort of every week just to remind ourselves, look at what the medium is doing. And the antidote to this is to awaken ourselves to it. To, it actually, it has been very enlivening for me. It's been fun. It's been like, aha. It's, it's been great to awaken to, look at what it's doing to me. without me even knowing. And I'm not saying all those things are necessarily bad, but we should know it if we're going to be relevant and meaningful for Christ in this culture. We should know what it's doing. Okay, I want to hit a break there. That's sort of what's passively happening, right? The medium is a shaper, and it's a part of the trending of the world, and the world is not trending towards the Lord. It's trending away from the Lord. So we need to be aware and to study these things. Okay, I want us to think about what we actually do, how we actively and actually participate. And for that, I want to just, I want to talk about what is technology. He says, um, I'm trying to make this a mild, neutral statement, because I think it is. Technology innovates or modifies God's creative elements. God made stuff. Technology is taking the things that God made and making something with them cake. Okay, it doesn't need to be complicated. If we think about technology, I can think in sort of three distinct categories that are helpful. First is what I would call creative technology, which is using the things that God's made to do, make a song or a painting or a poem or a story, purely for the creativity's sake. It's not solving a problem, it's sort of expressing someone's soul. The second category I would talk about would be explorative or inquisitive technology, which is technology that comes purely from curiosity. 
somebody wants to know what's on the other side of that mountain and they have to sort of make a rope to get there. Okay, that is, curiosity is the engine of that sort of technology. There's, there's no real problem. It's just someone's inquisitiveness. Now, I'm going to separate these two for a second. I'm going to say what I think is interesting about these two technologies, and this is to redeem maybe someone who has a negative view of technology, is that these technologies could have been right at home in the Garden of Eden, at least as I could imagine. Uh, I don't know chapter and verse about that, but I can imagine a non-fallen Adam and a non-fallen Eve. I can imagine Eve with kind of berry dye on her finger going, hey, this looks like you, Adam. And it being like a really handsome picture because he's Adam, right? I mean, or, or I can imagine Adam being like, you know, when she says, what are you going to do today, honey? I'm going, I, I always wanted to know what's on the other side of that cliff. I'm going to try to build something to get across because if it's this great here, how much more good has God done there? Right? I can imagine that. There's a third kind of technology that is different. And it's the one that I think we're most familiar with. And it is, I would say, restorative or reparative technology. It is innovation of God's matter to fix problems. Penicillin. The roof. Right? Something to make life easier. Bed sheets that don't bend your feet. Okay, reparative technology, and this technology again, I don't, I don't have a pejorative view on it. It's not necessarily good. It's not necessarily bad. Except that, at least it's worth noting, this kind of technology exists because of the fall. Because there are problems. Because we do need penicillin. Because things are not quite right. Because we do want to protect ourselves from the elements. Reparative or restorative technology is, is thinking and innovation that's taking place as an attempt of mitigating, here's a thought, it's mitigating the effects of the fall. You might think of it this way. This kind of technology, the kind that we usually think about, exists to roll back or lessen or dampen or reverse the effects of the fall. Now, I find that very interesting. I mean, just my mind, when I get to that crossroads, explodes. Because I think, well, God has a reason for the fall. God has given me the fall. God has given us the experience of the fall to save us. The consequences of sin, sort of the hardships that come into life, are there so that we live knowing that we're not in Eden. Something is wrong. And there's a hope, right? The Lord disciplines those he loves. There's a hope in the hardship of life that we would, we would become dissatisfied with the sort of the insignificant baubles that this world has to offer and look for real truth that has lasting meaning. That's the gift of the fall. That, you know who sees a great light? The people crying in darkness see a great light. You hear that? The people who know the fall find Jesus. And I, I just say, this is why it's curious to me, because 
in an effort to roll back the effects of the fall. Mm, that is really curious. What are we doing? Now, I thought of, there's two, it's a wonderful way and there's a dastardly way. There, you could say, and this is absolutely true, that we roll back the effects of the fall because we're made in the image of God. God spoke order out of chaos. God said to the Son of Man, tell me, can these dry bones live? And breathed on. Jesus Christ is the great reverser of the fall. He's the great restorative agent. He is, he makes all things new. He's going to take everything in you that is bent and broken and scraped up and the Spirit of God is going to blow on it and you're going to be fine one day. Well done. So there is in us, I think in us, a natural desire if we see something to fix it. If a child trips and gets a boo-boo on their knee, we, because we're God image bearers, respond. So in that sense, in that sense, I, I don't want to indict it, right? That's why it's so curious to me, because I can't just indict it. It's sort of a not-so-quick thought. That our effort to roll back the fall is in part a knee-jerk response to being made in the image of God. But it could be something else also. It could be a way of avoiding the reality of the fall. It has to do with your worldview. If you have a godly worldview, a Christ-filled worldview, then you can embrace technology in a pretty healthy way, I think. Because you have the right context. To embrace technology in a good way, it's, it's imperative that you do not deny the fall or try to defeat the fall. The fall is not the enemy. The fall is reality. Someone whose mind has the mind of Christ can minister or innovate or create or leverage or do all sorts of amazing things without sort of having this amped up need to solve the problem forever. How are we gonna do that? So you cure cancer, what's next? You know something is next. We're always going to die. So then do we just all die of dementia? Like, to sort of, some person could seek desperately to invent the cure for cancer as though the hope of brokenness is going to be answered by it. That's not a godly worldview. Whereas somebody else could be their colleague right by their side ministering to discover of cure because it's in us to fix things knowing that it doesn't we're still fallen and once this problem's done we have another problem people with a Christian worldview don't lose hope sort of in the march of technological innovation right if you fail to come up with a big cure or you fail to do this thing or that thing, it doesn't matter because we do have this hope that God, Christ, has already secured the greatest hope for us. So 
you can, if you have Christ in your heart, you can leave this world as an abject failure and go into glory. So we have this hope. And we have a sense of limits. We have a sense of, God didn't call me here to save the world. And saving the world is not going to happen by drilling a well here or by perfecting the solar panel or by, you name it, destroying ISIS. The hope of God is not hiding behind any of that. Now, if someone doesn't have a godly worldview, if all they have is this world, then they approach technology with different kinds of hopes, different kinds of goals. You might say it this way, they, technology serves, devoid of a godly worldview, technology serves to reinforce the myth of human autonomy. It's reinforcing in you the lie that you are an end in and of yourself and that you can extend yourself endlessly. Godless technology has an unbiblical optimism about what the hands of mankind can accomplish. It thinks that once they do that, that will really fix things. It thinks that world peace is two or three iterations away, a couple generations away. That's, that is a godless worldview. That's saying that the fall is not a reality from God. It happens to be a present circumstance that we can overcome. Godless worldview approaches technology with a blindness or a disinterestedness in the real problems because it is clouded by the human felt need. It interprets the problem as what the human's the felt need about it is. If you are the, the, the crown, the apex of creation, if you are all that matters, then how you feel about something is the problem. Rarely does God deal with our felt needs. God's on the way to our real needs. And a godless worldview tempts us to seek meaning and purpose, to tether it to created things rather than to creator. Let me give you an account. This is out of Genesis 11. I know the screen, the words are a little bit small, so I'm sorry about that. It's Genesis 11 if you want to turn. It's the account of Babel. It's Genesis 11 is sort of one of the last worldwide sort of converse accounts or narratives before the, the word just really begins to focus on Abram. But it's a, really great, it's a really great account to just study how we think um, apart from a godly worldview. This is what it says. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, 
They are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they cannot, may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off the building of that city. Now, I think it's great. There's this, there's this picture, right? The picture is one of human solidarity, sort of humanity is united in mind and purpose, and they boast in sort of a humanistic arrogance of the optimism of being able to overcome any sort of problem. If we do this, we'll, we will last forever. It's sort of an overly bold statement about the profundity of what they're doing. And the Lord sees it, and the Lord has this really interesting sort of rhetorical self-dialogue. And he looks down and he says, this is a serious problem. If these people are allowed to dwell on this idea, I think there's rhetoric here. I might say that the heart of it is they'll never find me. They will live in the myth of human autonomy. So God, who is the God of technology, like shakes the whole, like shakes the snow globe up. <laughs> he confuses their language, disperses them back into smallness where problems are real again. God wants us, God wants us to thoughtfully engage with our fallen state so that we'll be called back to him in real ways. He does not want us to seek cheap surrogates, cheap substitutes for what he wants to give us. Although he doesn't want us just to blithely appease our felt needs so that things are just good enough so that you don't go looking for him. And technology seeks to make life easier. It makes me curious. When you engage... And this could be, right, this could be a sermon series on idolatry. We just happen to be narrowing the idols down to the world of, of digital media. When we engage in the world of digital media, what kind of problems are you trying to solve? I think it'd be great if you were curious about that. What are you trying to solve when you go there, when you spend so much time there? How we process, how we push against and roll back the fall is a really important question. And I'm not trying to aim you towards a specific known answer. I'll tell you what, mountains of humility have just been come on me in preparing for this sermon series. So as a wounded creature, I'm encouraging you just to seek Seek in. So I'm not trying to get you to stop using Facebook. I'm not trying to get you to t turn in your, you know, burn a big pile of smartphones at the end of this sermon series so that people in Philadelphia can see the smoke. I'm not trying to do any of that, right? I am trying to awaken us all, awaken us to the notion that thoughtlessness is worldliness. And when we engage in these things, for one, the medium is doing something to us that we're not even thinking about. The medium is doing it to us. And then to begin to ask, why am I going? By the way, anyone who's dealt with addiction, 
has heard this sermon before, has heard it preached in your life, right? Why are we going where we're going? Why are we spending so much time there? And again, it's not just about social media. It could be, why do you play Clash of Clans so much? I mean, Tumblr, Weather Channel, Candy Crush, you name it. I've had to sit in the reality of, I'm playing Candy Crush, and all five of the people in my family are in the same room. What is that? We should ask those questions. I'm going to pray, and I want you to feel, I want you to feel more like we're setting out on a fairly unsettling, curious scavenger hunt for yourself and your family and your friends. I want you to feel charged to speak about this in life group and small group and in your Bible studies. I, would just, I, want, I want sort of the, the doors to be open for dialogue because I don't know what God would want to do with you just like you don't know what God would want to do with me. But I think if we're talking and if we're open and if there's a liberty a freeness and a charity of we will let God speak, I think really good things are going to happen. And I, I think we'll redeem the time that we may have been pining away in the wrong sort of way. So let me pray. And then uh, I'll close this with a blessing. Lord, we do ask you would be with us in this endeavor. I pray that this is the sort of thing that each spirit here can get on board with. Lord, I pray that you would begin to erase and abolish um, the hints of self-righteousness to think, well, this isn't my problem, it's their problem, Lord. If we watch TV, if we rush to answer a ringing phone, it's our problem. If we read online news or wait for the newspaper, it's our problem. So Lord, I pray that there would be an inquisitiveness, a holy inquisitiveness into this area of our lives. And I do pray, Lord, you'd make us open for change because we we even know you want you to make us like yourself. You want to make all things new. So we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.